This morning, uh, we are going to be um, summarizing the 10 lessons or the nine lessons into a 10th lesson of what we have learned over these last few weeks on the subject of educating our children or rather forming our children. And so let's go back to the very beginning uh, to Genesis chapter 3 and just remind ourselves of the sort of foundation of why learning is difficult or rather becoming is so challenging. So Genesis chapter 3 and would somebody like to read for me? We'll just read not the whole chapter. We will read, let me just find. We will read uh, verses 1 through to 7, or someone, would, would they be willing? Thank you, Jedediah. Nice and, right, Jedediah, as you stand up and speak, you've got a great voice. I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine there's a man hiding under that table and he has to hear you, okay? Go for it. Uh, up to verse 7. Yeah, yeah, so up to verse 7. Sorry. Thank you. Yeah, sorry, I should have said in, in up to and including verse 7. So well done, Jedediah. So we have seen right from the very beginning that everything has to do with relationship with um, God our Father and how that relationship is then interfered by other things. In the garden, it was the serpent interfering with the man and the woman's relationship with God the Father. So you have this immediate interference. And every lesson that we have looked at, we have looked at all of those things which interfere with our relationship with God, which then makes our growth and our development in wisdom and understanding difficult. And then it opens up the doors to dangers of how our hearts can be led astray and how our minds can be become dull to the things of God. And I have all the lessons here, but let me just state this, that, um, that the tree of knowledge of good and evil, depending on how you understand it, um, if you were to follow the theme throughout scripture, one of the things that you begin to understand that Psalm 1 is, is probably speaking about Christ, but it has particular application to the covenant community of God's people. 
of how to be fruitful and how to bless one another. But Christ is the source of all knowledge of uh, all knowledge and understanding when it comes to our relationship. So in Christ, only in Christ, do we get to grow and do we get to have the wisdom and the knowledge of both good and evil in a safe environment, um, the place where we are going to be protected by God through his son, by the power and work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've not gone into that. That can perhaps be for another time. But I just want to emphasize over and over and over again that everything is going to come back to a relationship with the Lord our God. So does anybody remember, there's a chocolate in it for you, uh, what the first lesson was, what the title of the first lesson was or the subject, anything about it? Now remember, there's always one answer that you can give that is always the right answer. Go for it. Sorry, nice and loud? Is... Oh, Esther. Oh, when we did the series on Esther. That was very good remembering. You can have a chocolate for that. That wasn't the answer I was looking for, but that was a great answer. Thing is, I can't not give away chocolate, can I? So you can have one at the end, okay? We're going to make sure everyone gets one. But does anybody remember the first lesson? It, it came down to how you read, how you read God's word. So let me take you back to, so train up a child in the way that he shall go, and when he is old, he shall not depart. Is that a promise or is that a principle? And does anyone remember the lesson that came from that? If not, I'll just carry on. The lesson was this, that if we read it as a principle, as though sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not, then what we're effectively saying is this, that God expects us to keep his word, but we don't expect him to keep his own. You see the problem there? That's a huge problem. Because if God has only given us principles where sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not, it becomes almost impossible to trust God because God is expecting you to obey but he doesn't even have to obey his own word so therefore there are principles within scripture but those principles come out of concrete promises that is things which are true and therefore can never be anything but true and so Train up a child in the way that he should go is a promise with an outcome that is based on our relationship with the Lord. In fact, this came out in the men's book study. I forget what subject we were on. Um, but the idea that children, when they get to the age of, say, 13 or 14 and 15, that it is, it is normal for them to depart from the faith and go out into the world is not true. It is common, but it is not normal. Because if you say it's normal, you then expect it. If it's normal, then you then think you can do nothing about it, because it's bound to happen. But if it's common and not normal, you then begin to realize that God has actually given us things to prevent that which is common out in the world, so that the church can be truly distinct. 
And one of those is the promises of train up your child. Now, of course, the counterpart to that of growth is that relationship with God. Am I going to pay attention to God and listen to his wisdom and his understanding, or am I going to be convinced by lies? So that was how we began our lesson. Or to put it another way, choice, every choice you make is about what you have confidence in. So go back to Genesis 3, uh, and what you'll find is that when Eve makes the choice that she does along with Adam, the, it doesn't mention anything about confidence, but it is implicit in the text, in the sense that when she saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, able to make one wise, she, that gave her a sense of confidence. This is convincing, and that confidence in what was being revealed to her then led her to make the choice that she does. And therefore, when we understand the difference between promise and principle, when we have confidence in God's word, we are therefore able to make more choices um, that are consistent with God's word. Does that make sense? So confidence is really the foundation of choice making. Okay, unless, of course, you're just making a choice in absent-mindedness. You're just not thinking, oh, you know, it's just the last-minute thought. But generally speaking, we make choices based on that which gives us the most confidence. And so God, who should have been the source of all confidence, hence why we would hold to what we call the sufficiency of Scripture, that Scripture is able to do everything it promises to do. We should never think, well, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, okay? So that was the first lesson. And if you want to stop and ask questions at any point and just say, well, I perhaps missed that lesson. Oh, <laughs> I wasn't quite ready for that, Paul. Okay, go for it. Yeah. Yep. Did I, well, I... I I, not, well, I, well in, in the other eight that followed, I sort of tied into it, yeah. So the training um, involves understanding the fallen nature of a child, understanding that the child's natural condition, now fallen, is um, not to receive wisdom. And so a child has to move from a fool into simple, into a son. And so the fool is the one who rejects God, the simple is the one who hasn't quite made up his mind, is this good or bad? And then the son is the one who fully commits to the training. I say, so, ascent, but there's so. so it is, uh, like his way, it starts as an evil nature, but it, it's transformed by God's grace. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, absolutely, yeah. So, essentially, that the word of God is able to produce in the child's life that which doesn't exist and therefore bring things out of it that then create, well, that's conversion. That there's just that converting that happens. Um, and of course, children who grow up in covenant homes are not aware of this change because it's like a fresh garden where these good seeds are being planted. And over time, because more good is entering their life than bad at a very early stage, 
then they're able to enjoy the blessings of that much sooner than, say, someone who gets converted at 15 or 30 or 35. So it's that slow growth of, of that constant feeding. Yeah. Great. So the lesson number one was principle or promise, the sufficiency of Scripture. And, and there's plenty of verses that we looked at. Um, but essentially, it came down to that choice is always a matter of confidence. Okay, we make choices based on that which gives us confidence. Does anyone remember the second lesson? Now, remember, just let me re remind you, there, are, there is one correct answer and one way of escape. I said that at the very beginning. The way of escape is that if no one gives me an answer, I default to Quinn. Okay, and Quinn has to give me the answer. And the other answer is, you should know by now, it's the one answer that you can give that's never wrong. So does anyone remember the second lesson? Jonah. Jesus. That's the right answer. That's always the right answer, yeah. So it was more... It was more detailed than Jesus, but that is right. You can't see. Now, remember, children, Jesus is always the right answer, okay? If you say to me, if you don't know what the title was, you just go, Jesus, you've got a chocolate, right? Because it cannot be anything but Jesus. Okay, so the second lesson was truth and experience. So the temptation for children and sometimes for adults is that we think we need experience to confirm truth. Okay? We think we need experience to confirm truth. An example of this was that Adam and Eve had the knowledge of death, but they did not have the experience of death. But when they experienced death through disobedience, it didn't make the truth any truer. In other words, the experience didn't benefit them in any way whatsoever. And so the idea that experience can somehow be a better version or something in addition to what we need than just reading God's word is just not true. So for you children, you could never really say, well, you don't know because you've not experienced it, okay? Or I don't know because I've not experienced No, we can because God's word protects us from the experiences that don't teach us anything, that only seek to rob us. Does that make sense, everyone? Yeah? So Adam and Eve had the knowledge of good, uh, had the knowledge that if they disobeyed God, it would lead to death. And when they had the experience of death, nothing was improved. Everything just went worse. So not all experiences, okay, help us to understand the truth or help us to understand anything better. Do you remember that lesson? And so truth, this is the lesson really, truth should always inform um, our future experiences. In other words, that if you go near a fire and you feel that it's hot, there are certain um, things that God has created the world with to let you know there are potential dangers. Okay, that as you get closer to the fire, it gets hotter. And therefore, if you're already feeling it too hot on your skin, you know that if you get any closer, it's going to get worse. Okay, these are just 
beautiful realities that God has uh, built the world uh, in such a way where we learn things in this way. I'll give you another example. Okay. I think, I can't quite remember what the physics is on this, but I think there are 14 pounds of pressure in every cubic square inch. Is that right? Cubic inch squared, I think. Anyway, what it means is this, that God has created the world in such a way where if you hold your breath, just try it. I'm not going to, I have to speak, so hold your breath. And what you'll begin to feel is those 14 pounds of pressure per square inch pushing down on your chest. So the whole of creation is teaching you, you are not meant to live life without breathing. God has created the world where we don't even have to think to breathe. I want you to think about that for a moment. You don't have to think to breathe. If you did, how many of you would be alive, right? God has just given us this wonderful way of living in a world where we're constantly reminded of how we are created in the hands of God. This is truth and experience. Holding your breath, okay, leads us to the truth that we are meant to breathe. Now, you may not be thinking about it that way, but if you just spend some time in self-reflection, you feel the pressure. You're meant see, that's the world that God has made us live in. And so, we don't always learn more by experiencing more. So children, I don't want you to ever feel that if you don't have certain experiences and you've not got to enjoy certain things, that somehow you're missing out. You may not be missing out on anything, but you will most definitely be protected from a lot of dangers, okay? A lot of dangers. So that's, that's the relationship between truth and experience. Okay, does anybody remember the third lesson? You should know by now. It was, yes, well done. Life under compulsion. So does anyone remember um, the man in the Proverbs that we read and he prays that his life be kept from two extremes because when our life experiences extremes, Jedediah? Sorry? I'm sorry, I can't, I, because of the air conditioner, I can't. The man was. Oh, that was Psalm 73, Asaph. Are you talking about Psalm 73 or Proverbs 30? Yes. So he prays. And he prays that his life be kept from riches and from poverty. From riches because it has the potential of causing him to deny God and forget about God. And from poverty because it would then cause him to go out and steal and profane the name of God. In other words, we, we are driven and by life under compulsion. And Proverbs 27, 27, 27, 7, that he who is full loathes honey, but to him who is hungry, every bitter thing is sweet. And I give you the illustration that uh, Susan doesn't let me go shopping with her because I constantly go through the shops going, oh, what does that taste like? Because, I go, because when I go to the shops, I'm hungry, and I just try this, that, and the other. And what happens is, is those hungers then drive decisions. 
Okay, hungers drive decisions. And so there are destructive hungers that make life more difficult. Here's an example. Okay, you take, and I gave you this example before, you take a beautiful road that has a few twists and turns in it, and you're driving along it, and you can drive it along it perfectly well. But if you fill that man with too much alcohol and he becomes drunk, then suddenly an easy road to drive on becomes impossible because of his internal, what he has filled himself up on. And so a destructive hunger can lead the man astray. Okay, and we can have all types of destructive hungers. The word epithemio, uh, which is found in Romans a couple of times, I think it's also in uh, Ephesians, speaks of... Uh, and an inordinate love for a good thing. In other words, too much of a good thing can actually be bad for you. You can become uh, so driven by it that it can then shape and direct everything in your life. And so life under compulsion is life where you are driven by your appetite. I want this, I want that, I'm, I desire this, I desire that, I fancy this, I fancy that. Um, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, and, and so you're, you're driven not by sense, but you're driven by the nonsensical things, such as hunger, appetite, um, anything that you have a destructive hunger for, that is you want more of it, like a gluttonous appetite, where you want more and more and more and more, and it's, it's, it's a deadly sin because it leads to death. It's, these are serious sins. And so life under compulsion allows us to understand um, the difference between what is needful, what you actually need as a person, and that which you can actually go without, and sometimes you must go without, if your life is not to be directed by uh, compulsion. And if you look at Esther chapter 1, uh, King Xerxes, or Hahashverosh, depending on which uh, where you want to read his name, um, is a life under compulsion. He is driven by too much drink. He is driven by what he wants, irrespective of what his wife wants. And it just leads to the downfall of him. Now, God is at work, but you begin to see quite easily that there is a man who lives life under compulsion. And one of the best books um, is actually a romantic book called The Betrothed, written by an Italian author. And basically, he is just driven uh, by this love for this woman that he have, it just destroys him in the end because he is completely shaped by his mum, his mother, who has not been a good mother. And he doesn't realize that he is simply imitating the compulsions of his mother, and it, anyway, you have to go read the book for yourself, called The Betrothed. It's, it's a lengthy book, but it's, it's kind of good. Um, and that's really about life under compulsion, life under uh, uh, influence, destructive hungers. And so that was the third lesson. So the point was, is that as you raise your children, you have to make sure that they get what is needful for them and not too much of a good thing uh, because you can begin to uh, have an, an unhealthy appetite for it and that can then lead you, uh, lead you astray. Okay, the fourth lesson. 
Quinn? So I know, it's, 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 I, don't ex, I don't expect, the answer is Jesus, Quinn. Jesus, okay, got it. So the fourth lesson was a spiritual sensitivity that when we begin to love things, mainly the things that we trust in and that we make more than God, we become spiritually desensitized to the things of God. And we saw this in Psalm 115, that those who make idols become like them. Idols have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, mouths but cannot speak, hearts that cannot feel, and those who make them become like them. And so as you begin to worship idols, whatever the idol is, anything that you are trusting in for the future, anything that you are depending on other than God, the list is endless. What happens is you come to church on a Sunday morning and you spent the whole week without reading God's word. You spent the whole week without praying to God and you come to church expecting to hear and you can't. And the reason you can't is because you have become desensitized to the things of God. You have become spiritually dull. And so what happens, instead of your life changing positively, it just firstly plateaus out and then it just drops off into eventual just, well, I don't want to say uh, atheism or agnosticism, but it's functionally atheist in the sense that there's nothing in your life that is actually promoting anything that is godly. And so the moment you become a servant of things rather than a servant of God, you are shaped by that master in exactly the same way God can shape a person who serves him. Does that make sense? Yeah? So I want you to think about this as your children grow up that it's really important to understand that they know who their master is. And the question that I had here is, is why is, uh, why do children lose interest in the things of God? Okay, or to put it more bluntly, why does anybody lose interest in the things of God? And the problem here is one of standard. So I've met plenty of Christians who uh, say, you know, that they're Christian, they do this and that and the other. But when you actually look at their Christian life and you look at their commitments, by what standard are they judging their interest? Okay, and that's the question. By what standard do you judge your interest in God? Because if you judge it according to what a servant of God looks like, you look very disinterested. And so why do we lose interest in the things of God? It is first and foremost because we're going back to the Garden of Eden. We are trusting in someone other than God. That's it. And we make choices based on those things that we are confident in. And so if a man is more confident in his ability than he is depending on God, then that'll determine every choice he then makes. And then every child growing up in that home will then copy their father. Because for children, more things are caught than taught. Okay? The, the catching of behavior is far more influential than the actual teaching that I can do here 40 minutes on a Sunday morning. Okay? Way more influential. And hence why we need to straighten the lines on a Sunday morning. Okay, we have to move through quickly. Fifth lesson was imitation. 
Um, people cannot help but desire the desires of others. And we got this from the 10th commandment, okay? And I gave a funny story that um, my wife, I asked my wife to get me some sports wear because so, I was feeling that I was gonna make an effort in getting fit. And I got tracky bottoms and I got uh, some Canterbury bottoms, isn't it? And a Canterbury top and trainers. And all of a sudden I, <laughs> I just felt fit. Like I was just, you know. Um, no, there was, there was no substance behind it, but I couldn't, like, watching Wimbledon, what do you think, after I watched Wimbledon, was the first thing I wanted to go out and buy? Right, a tennis racket, because I'm like, I love tennis. I never, never get the time to play tennis. And so we go out and we, you know, right, and we played tennis on summer holidays and what have you, and when we played it, it was great fun. But that's what happens, we see something and when we see it, it has this ability to make us copy. Why? Because essentially, children don't know what they want. And so they end up desiring the desires of others. And so when we look at Christ, we need to desire the desires of Christ. That doesn't mean have what Christ has. It means desire what Christ desires. And then that will come out in our life in different ways. And the reason we do this, the reason children do this, I think, more than anything else, it, and this is really important, is that children, just like adults, seek approval. We want to be approved. We want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, when we finish serving God in this life. And the reason we seek approval is because approval is the one thing we cannot give to ourselves. We can buy things for ourselves, we can enjoy lots of things by ourselves, but we cannot approve ourselves. It's just not possible. And so children are constantly looking for approval. Dad, do you like my dress? Okay. Dad, did you see that? Did you see the flip I just did on the trampoline? Did, Dad, right? What are they doing? What, what are they seeking? When they don't just want you to watch. They just don't want you to comment. They are actually seeking approval because it is the one thing they cannot give to themselves. It's just impossible. And so we desire the desires of others essentially because we are driven by approval seeking. And that's exactly what you see um, going forward. Uh, sixthly, how do we determine the will of God? Now you should know this one. Three things. Bethany, how do we determine the will of God? And I know you know it. Yeah, okay, I'll give you a clue. The first one is desire. The second one is opportunity and ability. Excellent, yeah. Desire, ability, and opportunity. So if I desire to be a missionary and I have the ability to be a missionary, what do I need to be a missionary? I need the opportunity. But if one of those is missing, Am I going to be a missionary? No. So if I have the desire um, to serve in the church and I have the ability to serve in the church, what do I need to serve in the church? The opportunity, okay? And so there are lots of opportunities in this church to serve, okay? And so if you have the desire and the ability, then the opportunity is what brings those three together. And so children, when you're trying to figure out 
the way God is leading you in the future and whatever he's got for you, I want you to think about these three things. What are my desires? What are my abilities? And what are the opportunities that God has given to me? Okay? Think of those three things, and as your children grow up, and you as well as adults, you begin to understand that God doesn't chop and change. He has more of a slow direction. He gives you skills and abilities that eventually you will use further down the line. Nothing's wasted. Okay, quickly. Uh, number seven. Anybody remember what seven was? The ordo amoris, the ordering of your affections, which means that these constantly have to change. In other words, you have the expulsive power of new affections. Okay? Thomas Chalmers said this. He said that there is nothing more powerful than a new affection to drive out an old affection. So, you're, so man's love for gambling can be driven out of his life by a greater and more powerful love for drinking. One goes as the other comes in. But positively, it's the same. Until you get to the ultimate affection. God is the only one, your love for God and God's love for you, is the only affection that can order all the other affections properly. And so what happens as children grow up is they're constantly trying to order these affections so that they can understand how God is leading them. So for instance, if you have a child that wants to become X, Y, or Z, and they don't like subjects A, B, and C, but they need those subjects to do that, show them the order of affections. Just lay it out to say that this here, if you want this, you'll be motivated to do this because this leads to that. Does that make sense? So I want you to understand, children, that that there's, there's lots of things that you'll have to do that you may not like doing now, but it will lead to the very things that God will have you do in the future. And that's really important to understand that, the ordering of your affections. Ultimately, though, that God is the one affection that can make sure that all the other loves are in their correct order so that you never are led astray by anything in your life that is not God's leading. Okay, number eight, wisdom is, this was only like two weeks ago, wisdom is relational. And we looked at Solomon, didn't we? And how Solomon was the wisest man, but he rendered the wisdom that he was given ineffectual because of his divided heart. Doesn't matter how smart he was, doesn't matter how rich he was, he became foolish, not a fool, but he became foolish in his decisions because he rendered the wisdom that he was given ineffectual by a divided heart. Because wisdom is relational. Wisdom is God. Okay, and so when your relationship is wrong, it doesn't matter how smart you are, you're unable to function wisely. And then finally, uh, last week <clears throat> that worship is a way of life and not a habit okay in other words a habit is an external pattern that you use to try and get you to do the things that you're not doing the trouble with that is it is not an internal motivation okay so habit forming 
is a good practice, generally speaking. The trouble with it is that it is an outside-in approach rather than an inside-out approach. And the Latreia in Romans 12 is, if you read Romans 12, it actually says, as you consider the mercies of God, that as you consider what God has done for you, then therefore you have that internal motivation to then present your lives as a living sacrifice before God, which is the outward uh, action. So habit forming is outward in, which is not a bad practice, but it doesn't really deal with the heart. Okay? Whereas uh, the other way round, by considering the mercies of God, you are then driven to do more and to present yourselves to God properly because you are actively considering the mercies of God shown to you. So it's not an outward constraint, it is rather an inward motivation. And that goes part in part with conformity to the world and transformation. Because the way the world will conform you is by constraining you through habits of practice to a certain way. Whereas the way you'll be transformed is again back to the internal consideration of God's mercy. Okay, there's a lot there. And as I promised at the beginning of this series, um, I will put each lesson, I'll summarize each lesson into a, a short chapter and then I'll eventually give it to the congregation so that you can have it as a PDF or something like that. You know, just something you can read on your phone nice and easy. Let me pray. Let me pray. Father God, we, we give you thanks that despite the complexities of living life in a fallen world and having to deal with uh, sin in our own life, that your grace is sufficient to cause us to walk in your ways, to love you, and to put you first. And we pray, Father God, this morning that we would be such a people who love you in thoughts, in words, and in deeds, both this day and every day coming. In Jesus' name, amen.